Making sure a business thrives is challenging, but sometimes the solution can lie right in the numbers. Uh, specifically, 37,000, 25, and 1. Now, these aren't just figures. They're a gateway to more visibility and decisive control in your business. Let's start with 37,000. That's the amount of businesses who've embraced NetSuite by Oracle, the ultimate cloud financial system revolutionizing accounting, financial management, HR, and beyond. And 25? That's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do everything from accelerating financial closures to slashing operational costs. And every business is unique, making yours the one that matters. NetSuite offers tailored solutions to amplify your key performance indicators, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Ready to optimize? Download NetSuite's coveted KPI checklist, engineered to elevate your performance consistently, absolutely free. Visit netsuite.com slash cbs now. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. Good morning. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Anthony Mason, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. It's the money issue, our annual look at how we earn, spend, and invest. And we're not just looking at us. The people of a small island nation have attracted a lot of attention lately by putting their misbehaving bankers on ice, so to speak, as Martha Teichner will report in our cover story. Iceland is famous for its exotic natural wonders. And now, for something else. How many bankers are in jail? Between 20 and 30 have gotten sentences of jail. I had this Sunday morning, justice, Viking style. Here at home, it's no degree, no problem. Some tech-savvy whiz kids think there's no need to invest in a college education. John Blackstone has tracked them down on their home turf. Who needs college? Not these tech whiz kids. You're living in your office. You both gave up Harvard for this? Yeah, exactly, for all of this. I mean, what more could we want? Teenage CEOs ditching school, trying to become Silicon Valley's next big thing, ahead on Sunday morning. You probably don't think of coffee when you see the name Hugh Jackman. Turns out he's got a second calling. With Lee Cowan this morning, we'll be taking a coffee break. Hi. Morning. At a small coffee shop in Manhattan. Good to see you. Good to see you. Actor Hugh good? Jackman is gloating a bit. After all, he owns the place. We are, I think, per square foot, the number one selling retail space. We just passed the Apple store. Wait, you passed the Apple store? Very, that's what I was told. <laughs> per square foot. <laughs> what those per square foot sales are doing halfway around the world later on Sunday morning. They're digging for a precious stone with the power to change lives way down, down under. And Seth Doan's been watching them at work. In Australia, there's a town unlike any other where almost everyone is on a treasure hunt searching for opals. This is probably the only place in the world where you, you know, you can be broke one day and rich the next. In the land down under, we go way down under later 
on Sunday morning. You do what for a living? That's what we're tempted to ask when someone tells us about their very odd job. Showing us some of the weirdest is Susan Spencer's task this morning. Guys, are you ready to try our new flavors? Talk about odd jobs. These folks eat dog treats for a living. You don't find yourself then wanting to go drink out of the toilet or anything. <laughs> Honestly, it's just like a cookie, just a little drier. From dog treat tasters, to chewing gum removers, to human mannequins, people who do weird stuff for money, ahead this Sunday morning. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The crash of 2008 put the economies of many nations on ice. Few took a harder hit than Iceland. Years later, politicians and bankers are still paying the price, as Martha Teichner reports in our cover story. In Iceland, a volcanic eruption of the political kind. Angry protesters demanded the resignation of their prime minister when last week's sensational data leak revealed his millions of dollars of undisclosed holdings in Iceland's three biggest banks, which collapsed during the world financial meltdown in 2008. This past Tuesday, Prime Minister Sigmundur David Gunnlaugsson stepped aside. Iceland is known for its volcanic eruptions among its many exotic natural wonders. And now for something else. After the crash, it let its banks fail and put its bankers in jail. When the three big Iceland banks collapsed, all three would have ranked them on the 10 largest bankruptcies in U.S. history had they been U.S. companies. Historian Magnus Sven Helgeson actually conducts walking tours explaining what went wrong when Iceland's bankers and businessmen set out to turn a country of only 330,000 people into a world financial capital. These guys, I mean, they styled themselves as corporate Vikings, sort of laying claim to the, the mantle of the original Vikings that settled Iceland. The banks borrowed massive sums of money, then loaned it out again at much higher rates of interest to entrepreneurs who, like the ancient Vikings, plundered, buying up companies worldwide. Money rolled in, and a nation of fishermen began believing in the so-called Icelandic miracle. A lot of people seemed to be getting very rich very fast, and a lot of people wanted to join in on that. Katrín Jakobsdóttir is one of the members of parliament who decided on Iceland's hardline response when this whole house of cards built on debt came tumbling down. Even though the banks also were responsible as a whole, I think uh, it, it was the conviction that also the individuals within the banks had done this. There were huge daily protests then, too. It was called the Pots and Pans Revolution. The entire economy was in freefall. Inflation skyrocketed. Unemployment more than quadrupled. And the big three banks were not too big to fail. They were too big to save, valued at ten and a half times Iceland's GDP. Three, five, 99%. Three, five. 
At the same time, Americans were angry too. In the United States, more than 8 million jobs were lost. More than 5 million people lost their homes. But Congress spent $700 billion in taxpayer monies to bail out the banks. And their executives kept right on collecting their high salaries and bonuses. Exactly one U.S. banker went to jail, trader Karim Saragelden. Not so in Iceland. Oliver Hauksen was appointed special prosecutor. He was given a hefty budget and a mandate. The question here in Iceland was, was criminality involved? And if there was criminality involved, there, would be a pro there should be a prosecution. Outside Hauksen's office, something not seen elsewhere. The country's top bankers facing charges of market manipulation and fraud, ambushed by media. How many bankers are in jail? Uh, between 20 and 30 have been uh, gotten sentences of, of, of jail. Sigurun Arnason, former CEO of Landsbanki, will begin serving a five-year prison sentence in the fall. This was a part of the show. His lawyer, Sigi Gudjonsson, dismisses the prosecutions as political theater. A kind of a witch hunt. A witch hunt. Yeah. People were angry. So you had to um, come up with some kind of political solution. The bankers are sent to Kviabrigia prison. No bars, but hours from anywhere. An Icelandic journalist allowed in for an interview was told, We never did anything that wasn't in the interest of the bank or its clients. The worst thing was the uh, broken trust. Information security consultant Marino Nielsen was one of thousands of property owners who lost homes. And that's, uh, that's why nobody feels pity for the bankers in the jail, because they, uh, they cheated on us. You know, they told us lies. They, they uh, covered up. And, and we were the ones that were paying for it. Iceland's economy has recovered, and how it dealt with its banks and bankers has taken on a kind of neat, mythical, they-did-it-right quality for many people. But here, as last week's events make plain, the anger remains, ready to erupt at any time. Something trying to hide right there. Ahead, on the hunt. Metal detectors like this one are a must for modern-day hunters for buried treasure. Luke Burbank tagged along with two of them. Should be good to go. Good to go. Can we loop around this tree? Sure. We'll kind of watch for snakes by these rocks. Yeah, well... It's a sunny Saturday in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas near Sacramento, California. Something trying to hide right there. And Ron Swenson and Mark Dayton are on the hunt. Dude. Yeah. We always what? find a shovel. You got a shovel? Back in the 1800s, this was gold rush country, drawing thousands of dreamers, a few of whom even managed to strike it rich. Something here. These days, though, Swenson and Dayton's finds. Barbar bar fence. 
Look at that big square nail. Melted aluminum or something. Are usually more down to earth. Junk. Guys, where are we right now? So we know this house site dates to at least 1861. Swenson and Dayton are metal detector enthusiasts, or detectorists. In my hand, there it is right there. It's a coin. Between the two of them, they've got over 50 years of experience swinging their coils. When you're watching Star Wars, do you know what R2-D2 is saying <laughs> yes, at this point? No, I don't, but he would be a good metal detector. The detector machines, some of which can run from $25 to $10,000. I got a signal. Send a magnetic field into the ground. The sounds and tones it brings back vary according to what might be buried there. And it's like the language of the metal detector. So you learn what these different tones are. Like a high tone will be like a silver coin or something, and a low tone will be like iron. And so then all the metals in between have their own tone. See if we can pop something out of here. But the sweetest tone of all... Oh! Oh, oh dude! God, dude! Is the sound dude! of gold. Gosh, dude. Wow! I don't, know, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. Which Dayton estimates he's yeah. found two pounds of in the last year. That's almost $40,000 worth. And before that, they found this. Holy cow! Oh, that is huge! Jeez, look at a that. A four-ounce nugget. Oh, oh, dude! Wow. I noticed you guys use the term dude a lot. Yeah, well. God, dude, look at that! For some reason, you know, in my everyday life, I don't say it that often. Dude, look at this. Dude, it's an old pocket knife. But when we're out digging for treasure, for some reason, dude just seems to pop up. This is my treasure hall of fame right here. So In Swenson's home office, located in, believe it or not, El Dorado Hills, California. So that's a U.S. Union belt buckle. Oh, wow. Ron likes to show off some of his favorite finds. These are the gold coins we found. If you're looking for coins, this is what you're looking for. But before detectorists like Ron and Mark can start digging up gold, coins, or other stuff... They've got to put in time at the library. You go through the old maps and you get an idea where it is. Studying where mining camps are and old houses might have been. And they've got to get permission from the landowners. We get a lot of comments, you guys are so lucky. And we, the response is, you know, yeah, the more research we do, the luckier we get. So. What surprised me about our treasure hunt was how little treasure we found. This is considered a really good day and how little that seemed to matter to these detectorists. For me, when you dig something up, the value is really irrelevant. It's, it's that thrill of researching it, going out, and then you actually find it. And then when you dig it out of the ground and you're holding it, that's the thrill in itself right there. Proof positive, maybe, that one man's trash really is another man's treasure. This is my current favorite. Next. These people are eating dog biscuits. <laughs> How'd you like this job? Very minty. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It takes an odd sort of job to elicit the reaction, you do what? Throughout the morning, our Susan Spencer will be showing us a few of the weirdest. Can I have a s'more? Here are some ordinary folks at work having an ordinary lunch. Apple. Hardly. Yes, those are dog biscuits. This is my current favorite. That's delicious. 
So I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, these people are eating dog biscuits. <laughs> They're dog acting biscuits. like this is a totally natural, normal thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> it is in this office. The office is Bocce's Bakery, a family-run dog treat company where employees are expected to test the product themselves before Fido gets his little paws on it. So you have a team of people who taste this stuff. Yeah. Do we think it's strange that we're tasting dog treats? Probably a little bit, but for us, it's not really dog food because we know where it comes from. Originally, it came from Andrea Tovar's small kitchen in New York. Since 2010, she and sister Natalia have operated on a core belief. If people deserve all-natural, no-preservative gourmet treats, then so do their dogs. How do you break this to employees if this is part of, of what you expect? You would be surprised. A lot of them try them without us actually yeah. making them. The treats are nearly 10 bucks a bag. But what a menu. Chicken cordon bleu, lobster roll, truffle mac and cheese. I don't know how to tell you this, but dogs eat garbage. <laughs> You know, they you drink out of toilets. <laughs> we yeah. have a lot of very picky customers. Maybe, but dogs operate with roughly 1,700 taste buds. Humans can have as many as 10,000. Just don't try telling that to there office mascots Blue and Bocce, who must be two of the luckiest dogs in America. Bocce's Bakery sells about 8 million biscuits a year nationwide. No one's counting the ones eaten in the office. Try this one and tell me what you think of it. Mint. Very minty. Business is booming, though requirements for working here are not to everyone's taste. I can't believe I'm going to do this. Okay, I know you smell it first, right? You smell it. I don't know what that is. Woof. <laughs> Still to come. What you're going to get is a big pine citrus floral aroma. You guys smelling it? Samuel Adams, beer revolutionary. From hero of the revolution to successful brand of beer, it's no wonder so many folks are saying cheers to Samuel Adams. Serena Ulchel paid a visit to Sam's hometown. Four ingredients go into beer. At the Sam Adams Brewery in Boston, Massachusetts, craft beer lovers unlock the aromas of hops. What you're going to get is a big pine citrus floral aroma. You guys smelling it? Learn what a mashin is. Mash looks like a porridge or an oatmeal, and it's going to turn really sweet. And of course, sample a variety of brews. This was actually brewed with kosher salt, which is something that I didn't know before, but it definitely adds a different like layer of flavor to the beer. My favorite ones would be like porters or stouts, really darker, sweeter ones. Super hoppy styles are really in with my generation. Today, there are more than 4,000 craft brewers in the United States. When Jim Cook started his company in 1984, the American beer landscape was very different. American beer was the laughing stock of the rest of the world because everybody thought it was just watery and fizzy. Determined to change that, Jim Cook quit his corporate job to brew beer. He thought his father, a fifth-generation brewer, would be pleased. I thought we were going to have a father-son moment, and that's so great, you're continuing this long tradition. He didn't do any of that. He looked at me and said, Jim, you've done some stupid things in your life. This is about the stupidest thing. 
Today, Sam Adams, named for one of the fieriest of American revolutionaries, has started a revolution of its own. And Jim Cook is a billionaire. A made in America success story he writes about in his new book. You get compared to Steve Jobs. You're the Steve Jobs of beer. I thought that was a very kind comparison. <laughs> he put a ding in the universe. I'm just trying to give people a better glass of beer. Starting with his great-great-grandfather's recipe. Luckily, the hops that it called for, the specific varieties of hops, were still grown in Bavaria, just north of Munich. Oh my gosh, wow, that smells like beer. 32 years in, Jim Cook is as passionate about beer as ever, though now he's the guy to beat in an industry that has exploded in recent years. Is there a kind of bittersweet or ironic element to the fact that now I can't even find Sam Adams in some of these fancy beer bars where you have all of the crazy craft beers. Is that frustrating? Not really, because when I think about the success that Sam Adams helped create with the craft beer revolution, you know, it's been good for me. In fact, Jim Cook has actively fostered that revolution. Jeremy Lees started Flounder Brewing Company in Hillsborough, New Jersey, with a low-interest loan from Sam Adams. What was fantastic about it at the time was we just had a dream. This year, Flounder Brewing Company is expanding, and Cook's company will help them do it. Sam Adams is literally opening the door of their company to us. We get to go up there and meet with any departments we want to meet with. We're going to be starting payroll, so I want to meet with human resources people. We're going to be working in much, much larger scale of ingredients, so I'm going to get to meet with supply chain management and learn what they've done and so hugely successful. So it's an incredible opportunity. Final hop edition. You know, beer is literally in my blood. About a 0 .05, 0 .06, so legal, <laughs> but it's in my blood. For Jim Cook, when it comes craft to craft beer, he says there's plenty of room for everyone. All 4,000 craft brewers have now gotten to 10 or 12% of the market. We can double, that's pretty cool. Coming up, meet the whiz kids of Silicon Valley. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A select group of whiz kids seems to be thriving despite having dropped out of college. John Blackstone explains why. Dare we come in here? Now, this does look like a place where a few guys live. Oh, yeah, for sure, 100%. I sleep right there. I sleep over here. You gave up Harvard for this. Yeah, there's no place I'd rather be. When brothers Kieran and Rory O'Reilly were both accepted to Harvard, their parents marked the accomplishment with new license plates. And those license plates say? Two in Harvard, and then Harvard two. They might change it to two dropouts, <laughs> to be determined. They both quit Harvard as undergrads two years ago. They were just 18 and 19 when they moved to San Francisco with big hopes and almost nothing else. We moved around a bunch, three bags of clothes. Every day we would take it, move from hotel to hotel. I remember our bank account was always negative $66 because that's the overdraft fee. You're always broke. Always. Yeah. They're now living in their office. Every single day our mom tries to call us or send food. They've created a website, gifs.com, a tool for re-editing videos you find online. 17 million people in the past month have used gifs.com. 
The O'Reillys are on a path made famous by some of the tech industry's biggest names. Jobs, Gates, Zuckerberg. People that drop out of Harvard, maybe the Bill Gates of the world, the Zuckerbergs, they're the people that are really changing the entire world, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm glad to be a part of that. The O'Reillys are part of that, partly because Peter Thiel, one of the billionaire founders of PayPal, gave them $100,000 each. Thiel started his surprising giveaway five years ago, offering hundred grand to kids who quit college to build new things. What are you encouraging? If you have a great idea, the time to pursue it is now. Jack Abraham is executive director of the Teal Fellowship, which distributes the money to 20 new dropouts each year. We also hope to show society that this is an alternate path that people can and should consider and take. Abraham says 105 current and former Teal Fellows have created over 1,000 jobs and raised $330 million from investors. Only eight have returned to college. I'd say it's something that we should keep an eye on. For sure. Yeah. The selection committee is now sorting through 5,000 applications for this year's 20 fellowships. Most of the applicants would have much better odds getting into the Ivy League. It breaks my heart when some of the most promising students don't fulfill their potential because they're chasing rainbows. Vivek Wadwa, a fellow at Stanford University, has been a critic of the Teal Fellowship from the beginning. It's like what happens in Hollywood. You have tens of thousands of young people flocking to Hollywood thinking that they're going to become a Brad Pitt or an Angelina Jolie. They don't. They don't become billionaires. There haven't been many Mark Zuckerbergs after Mark Zuckerberg achieved success. And Wadwa says there is little evidence the Teal dropouts are doing much that isn't already being done in Silicon Valley. Everyone does the same thing. It's social media, it's photo sharing apps. Today it's sharing economy. It's me too, more of the same. But 19-year-old Conrad Kramer and 21-year-old Ari Weinstein were convinced they had a new idea. So when they were awarded Teal Fellowships in 2014, they both walked away from MIT to work full-time on their app called Workflow. There are some opportunities that come up that you would regret turning down, so Workflow is definitely one of those. When Workflow launched, it was the number one bestseller on Apple's App Store and has since won several awards. It's kind of like making your own apps that save you time. They've just hired their newest employee, Tim Shaw, a graduate of Stanford's business and law schools and an Army vet. He's 33 years old and says he doesn't mind taking orders from a teenage boss. I'm learning so much because they have such a wealth of experience despite their age. In Silicon Valley, it's about meritocracy of ideas. And so if you have a good idea, um, everyone's always receptive to listen to it. Zach Lotta found many people were willing to listen, leaving high school to move to San Francisco on his own to start a nonprofit called Hack Club. I first moved here when I was 16, and I showed up at a gym one day with some friends, and they turned me away at the door because I had to be 18. Now he is 18 and works full-time helping high school students learn to code. I feel challenged in every single day, uh, and I think I'm learning as much as I've ever been while being happy. For now, these wannabe tech titans live modestly in homes they share with several others or in offices that also provide a place to sleep. Instead of meals, some drink Soylent, Silicon Valley's version of fast food. It apparently contains all the nutrients necessary to stay alive in a bottle. 
This is breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Yeah, breakfast, lunch, snack, dinner. They are building their companies with money from investors who seem to care little whether they graduated from college. It's actually kind of a badge of honor here, dropping out. So 23-year-old Stacy Ferreira dropped out of New York University twice. The first time, she saw a tweet from Richard Branson offering to meet anyone who gave $2,000 to his charity. She borrowed the money and met him. She was 18 and starting her first business. And make a long story short, um, he and two of his buddies ended up investing $1.2 in our business that summer. Two years later, she sold that company for a hefty profit and returned to NYU, but then had another big idea that couldn't wait. If you can create your own job, why wouldn't you just do that and not get stuck paying student loans for the rest of your life? Instead of student loans, she has $100,000 from Peter Thiel. She's working on an app called Forge that aims to create an on-demand marketplace for hourly workers. She's hoping that dropping out of NYU again will pay off again. Is there a lesson in your story for other young people? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson to learn is just take risks. What's the worst that can happen to you when you take the risk? For me, the worst that can happen is I move home and sleep on my parents' couch for a couple months until I figure it out. Trivago shows you a better overview of available hotels. Next, pitch. You can use Pine Salt anywhere. Perfect. That is the power of Pine Salt, baby. In today's competitive marketplace, an advertising pitch needs to be pitch perfect, which is where the folks Nancy Giles has been talking to come in. I see you like pine cleaner. Oh, I just love pine salt. 22 years ago, I'll take my pine salt. Actress and comedian Diane Amos transformed into the pine salt lady. It's the powerful scent of clean. Kids will come up to me and go, okay, she's a pine salt lady. I go, yeah, and they go back and go, mama, that's the pine salt. I go, leave that lady alone. You don't know her. And so I would give the kids coupons and say, take that to your mama, right? And then they would know that it really was Oh my God, that is a pine salt lady. <laughs> Get out the pine salt cleaner, girl. She's long lasting, that pine salt lady. Standing out among generations of actors who have become famous for selling just about everything. Squeezably soft. Hi, we're Ocean Spray Cranberry Growers. Softens your hands while you do the dishes. Characters who we've all come to know and often trust, even though we really don't know them at all. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. I honestly think it's more about love of the camera. That is the power of Pine Salt, baby. So there's um, a magic that happens when someone, uh, you know, can make love to the camera. Trivago compares live prices for more than 150 different websites. Which might be especially true of the Trivago guy, who looks a bit like he just rolled out of bed. Check on Trivago to see whether you can book it somewhere else. Tim Williams grew up in Houston, but was in Germany acting in a soap opera when an audition for the German travel website Trivago came up. I said, sure, why not? You know, it's a gig. So I jumped in there and then uh, all hell broke loose. It was all over the internet. Who is that hunky, disheveled guy? It's a different breed of, uh, of acting, you know, commercials, compared to doing a movie where you're playing a character. As a commercial, I try to keep myself as real as I am to myself. Trivago says that thanks to these ads, the U.S. has become its biggest market. And the Trivago guy is hitting the road. 
They said we're going to be doing the exact same commercial that you guys have already shot. We're going to do it in France. Trivago compare les prix de plus de 200 sites de réservation. Japanese has Trivago Woman. Trivago nara kimono hotel ga saiyasune de mitsukaru hazu. Then there are those catchphrases that become part of our vocabulary. He's got the owner. Hello? Where is the beef? The late Clara Peller's outrage on behalf of Wendy's Where is the beef? made it into presidential politics. When I hear your new ideas, I'm reminded of that ad. Where's the beef? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a new Clara Peller for a new age. And don't let that quiet needlepointing fool you. I always keep it on hand. All right. Meet 93. That's right. 93-year-old Jean Hamilton of Vancouver, Canada. She's made it through two husbands, three different kinds of cancer, and five careers, but had never acted until seven years ago. The agent, who is now my agent, had spread the word through the community that she was looking for an elderly lady with attitude. They were looking to sell Frank's Red Hot Sauce, with an expression you don't expect to hear from nice old ladies. How do you do it? Frank's Red Hot Sauce, I put that on everything. Did you have a hard time saying that line? Well, I must admit, admit. when I'm provoked, I do swear. Frank's claims its sales growth wow. is double that of other hot sauces. Saturday Night Live took note just last weekend. Hey, this is a survival item, okay? I put this on everything. For Gene Hamilton, it's all gravy. I want the experience of sitting here with you, having you say the line to me. Frank's Red Hot Sauce. I put that on everything. <laughs> I like how you sort of perked up while you're saying that. Well, sure. I, you've got to do that because, after all, they don't sell the sauce. I don't work. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Reading the fine print before we click agree to online contracts is a disagreeable task for most of us, and that most definitely includes our Faith Saley. When's the last time you thoroughly read one of those contracts you have to sign in order to post on Facebook or download iTunes or even watch a movie? You know, the fine print that says you can't sue the company, even for negligence. The contracts that say in negative three-point font that you'll now be billed by the Cheese of the Month Club for the rest of your life. If you answered never, then you're like me and just about everyone on Earth. Fewer than one in a thousand people read these things. Of course we click agree. We have lives to lead. Well, here are some things you're agreeing to. In case you're thinking of suing Apple, you've already agreed that to avoid muscle joint or eye strain, you should always take frequent breaks. Apple's warning us about iTunes, but they could just as well be describing how it feels to read their mind-numbing contract. Many e-contracts average 74,000 words. Instagram's contract is only 5,000, but if you agree to it, there's no telling where your selfies could end up. A few years ago, an online game company's contract actually called for its customers to surrender their immortal souls. And guess what? 7,500 people clicked goodbye to their souls. This kind of legal ease 
is not easy on the eyes or brain. If only I had a lawyer to help. Are you a lawyer? Yes. My name is Lance Kuntz, and I am a lawyer. Do you read these things? The short answer is almost always no, I don't. I read contracts like that if it's for a big transaction or something, for, for something expensive, and so it's not surprising. Justice Roberts in the Supreme Court a few years ago said he didn't read them either. Is there any risk to just clicking agree so I can go on with my life? There's always some risk. Um, generally speaking, I think consumers don't have great risk when they click agree because most transactions are small transactions and anything that was really outrageous or egregious that someone tried to sneak in, the courts probably would not uh, up uphold. Well, that's good news. Look, I wear my seatbelt. I don't smoke. I have earned the right to live life on the edge and sign these contracts without reading them. But if you are more prudent than I am, I have some good news for you. Contrary to what your mom told you, doctors now say that reading super fine print is actually good for your eyes. But it operates good? Yeah, that's fine. Awesome. You tested it? Yep. How's the uh, detergent coming out? Good? Anthony Mule goes to work well, knowing he will face some sticky situations. This is a passion for me. So you're on a mission. We're on a mission to clean up the country, one piece of gum at a time. He is a seriously professional gum remover. Little boys dream of being astronauts or policemen or firemen. Did you dream of this? Actually, no. I, I absolutely did not dream of uh, gum, but uh, somehow I stepped in it, so... <laughs> no chance of running out of work. Americans chew their way through $3 billion worth of gum every year. And when they're done... People just spit it out wherever and whenever it loses its flavor. I've seen gum stuck on walls. It's on the floor of the bar or under the stool, mostly on city sidewalks all those little black spots that you see on the floor. You are going to make me very aware of this. <laughs> I am now going to be obsessed <laughs> like, seeing gum everywhere. Yes. And when you see it, who are you gonna call? Gum busters, of course. Mule is the CEO. This is the brand new battery operated gum removal machine. It's the world's first. I want one of these for Christmas. <laughs> he showed us what gum busting is all about the special magic produced with a high-powered combination of steam, detergent, and a wicked brass brush. That gum is busted. That's great. <laughs> Gone. Where, where does it go? Actually, it vaporized. Huey says he can vaporize up to 1,200 pieces of gum an hour. This is sort of like trying to empty the Atlantic with a teaspoon, you know. I, I, <laughs> I agree. You don't get demoralized. I don't. I love it. And remarkably, he says he also loves gum. I'm actually chewing gum now. So. I know. <laughs> what are you going to do with it when you're done? <laughs> Dispose of it responsibly. In other words, wrap it up. Save the wrapper, put it in your pocket, in your pocketbook, and save it till you're done. You have a lot of faith in people. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of pride in satisfying work he clearly enjoys. Do you consider this an odd job? It is. It's quite unique. It's odd uh, and a dirty job. So, yes. But somebody has to do it. That's right. <laughs> Let it be us. Chew on that for a while.
Next, exploring the opal underground. They found about $20,000 worth just across the top of here. And of that actually, opal? Of opal. Dig down, down under long enough, and you may come up with a chunk of uncut opal like this one. Our Seth Doan traveled to Australia to see for himself. There's a treasure hunt going on down there. From above, the hundreds of thousands, some say a million or so holes, look like something an eager animal left behind. But humans drilled those holes, searching for opal. John Dunstan has been a prospector for nearly 50 years. What kind of fortune are you talking about if you find opal? You can find a million dollars, no problems. Really? Yeah. He's had to endure the blazing heat, not to mention the flies, and has not found any opal in two years. But there's that dream. This is probably the only place in the world where you, you know, you can be broke one day and rich the next. This place called Cooper Pedy is in Australia's great outback. It's an eight-hour drive to the closest city, and summertime temperatures soar to 120 degrees. Still, it became a destination after opal was discovered here 100 years ago. This is the lifeblood for Cooper Pedy. Yeah, that's, that's what basically built the town, these opals. George Busios polishes and sets opal gemstones into jewelry. What we look for is uh, bright colors. The brighter they are, the more brilliant the stone is, the more valuable they get. As much as 80% of the world's opal supply comes from Cooper Pedy's mines. So you're chipping away and yep. then all of a sudden you find yep. this. Yep. It's like striking gold. Oh, very much so. Like winning the lottery. Wow. This story could almost end here if it weren't for something else that makes this town really, really unusual. Did you ever imagine you'd be living underground? No. No way. I wrote to my family and said, I'm living underground in Cooper PD. My mother wrote back, return of post, don't be proud, son, we'll send you the fair home. <laughs> they, thought, yeah, yeah. they thought I was in a cave, you know. <laughs> Yep, it's not just the opals that can be found underground here, it's the people too. Folks like Shelley and Rod Wells. What's it like living underground? Do you even beautiful. think about it? Beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Why? It's always cool, you know, soundproof, great acoustics. It's nice and everybody here does it. It's the preferred way to live in Kugapedi underground. There are hundreds of these so-called dugout homes burrowed into rock. They're cooled naturally, an escape from the brutal heat. Is there anything claustrophobic about living underground? Well, if you've got the height, not really. Shelley runs a beauty salon down here. In town, there's the underground bookstore, an underground bar, and Debbie Clay showed us her underground business. At the front here, we're about 10 metres. By the time we get to the back, we're at 22 metres below the hill. Wow, so this so hotel goes really deep. It's really deep. Clay took us into what will soon be the newest wing. When you want to expand the hotel, you just dig deeper. That's right. And once you start digging in Cooper Pedy, It would take a long time to... <laughs> you never know what you might discover. They found about $20,000 worth just across the top of here. And that of actually, opal? Of opal. You can see the opal colour. That opal find paid for their entire previous renovation. 
in a section of the hotel which butts up against a 100-year-old mine. So you really don't realise how big the open space is here until we turn the lights on. It's a labyrinth back there. That's right. Tourism brings in more money than the Opals these days, as people come to marvel at a place where residents even worship underground. And which is filled with a real range of characters. Was this a mine or was this always a house? No, it was a mine. Meet Swampy. He lives underground next to an old Chevy truck he's working on and explained how when you need a shelf for, say, the skull of your old dog, Max, you just dig it out. Same thing for a second bedroom. It's a work in progress. <laughs> I see. Tell me about the work. What's involved? Um, basically, a rather large jackhammer. The second bedroom is not far away. Nah, no. <laughs> Close the gates at night, we've got our own little kingdom here. Rod and Shelley Wells say there's no better sleep than in a silent, windowless room. And that's all the better for dreaming of what they call opal fever. I've tried a lot of things in my life, but when you dig out a few thousand dollars with a handpick, it's the most beautiful feeling in the world. Ahead, actor and coffee shop owner Hugh Jackman. Hi, morning. Morning, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for coming. <laughs> I'm here every morning. <laughs> Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Hugh Jackman is a Tony and Emmy-winning actor whose most important role might just be in the coffee business. He's been talking about it with our Lee Cowan. I'm gonna teach you a little Aussie. Have a go, your mug. Have a go, your mug. <laughs> it's like, you're better to have risked something, even if it doesn't work out, than to have never tried. And it's really in our DNA. Hugh Jackman's have a go motto was on polite display as we headed out for coffee. Hi, morning. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for coming. <laughs> I'm here every morning. <laughs> this is perhaps his biggest risk of all. How are you? Good to see you. While he's been celebrated for his musical turns, on stage, and in film, most of us know him as Wolverine, that mutant Marvel superhero. You want to shoot me? Shoot me! It's been a wildly successful franchise for Jackman. But a few years ago, he decided to claw his way into the coffee business, too. Australians are very snobby about coffee. Are you snobby about your coffee? I'm very snobby about coffee, yeah. <laughs> so much so, he owns this postage stamp of a cafe and another just like it, both in Lower Manhattan. I get stopped more in the street, I can tell you this, in New York, for people thanking me for this cafe and for the coffee than I do for any of my movies. <laughs> Is that true? Thank, Thank you, you so guys. Much. And thanks for coming and here. And thanks for the Thank coffee you. shop. We come every morning. Actually, particularly, people will say, not so much the movies, but thank you for the coffee. <laughs> Today was a particularly important day in the business life of his coffee called Laughing Man. But to understand why... We have to take you halfway around the world to meet the man who made him laugh. Okay. 
No. <laughs> yeah, let me translate. Let me fix that for you. <laughs> this is the birthplace of coffee, Ethiopia. No, it's okay. Just like this or crumple it, yeah? It was here back in 2009, while making the documentary Ducali's Dream for the humanitarian group World Vision, that Jackman met this young coffee grower who would forever change his life. Did he have any idea who you were? Absolutely none. <laughs> Ducali is a fair trade farmer, which means he works with a cooperative in his village to ensure that his farm is both environmentally and economically sustainable, which in turn ensures that he gets a fair price for his beans. Talk about getting your hands dirty. <laughs> it's something we don't think about, and neither did Jackman, until he worked beside him and met Ducali's family. Their health and their well-being, he realized, was so tied to Jackman's morning ritual... Oh, yeah. ...that he promised to help. Ah, it's not about what you're given, it's what you do with it. So I unwittingly was given a profile, and I thought, what if in my brief moment of profile, let's call it 10 years, maybe 20 if I'm lucky, what if in that period I create something that lives beyond me? In short, he wanted to do with coffee what Paul Newman did with salad dressing. Funnel every dime from every cup of coffee sold into a foundation devoted to helping the farmers and their families. You don't get a dime of any of this, right? No, I, I give all my profits to charity. I'm At first, he sold Laughing Man only in his little cafes and online. But one day, coffee giant Keurig Green Mountain tried a sip, and suddenly, Ducali was in a K-cup. Which brings us back to this particularly important day and a trip Jackman was making with Keurig CEO Brian Kelly. And are they committed to fair trade? They're committed to fair trade, that's right. Keurig wanted to get Jackman's coffee into stores nationwide. And two months ago, Kroger, one of the nation's largest retailers, jumped on board. That meant flying to Kroger's corporate headquarters in Cincinnati to offer a special kind of thank you. Do you think you're a good salesman? I'm not bad. I'm not a bad huckster, I suppose. Hello, Jill, how are you? Hi, Brent Cox, nice Hello, to meet Brent, you. Hello, Brent, how are you? He seemed a natural. Yeah. Not just the glad-handing part, but the selling, too. I am fully aware in this triumvirate, Kroger, Keurig, Laughing Man is the little baby. But we're a baby with a big heart, and we really want to grow, and we need partners like you guys. By buying a fair trade coffee, you are sort of ensuring that the world is a better place, the planet is a better place, and the person who's actually growing that bean from which you're sipping your coffee is got a shot at living a, a, a sustainable uh, life with opportunity for them and their families. It's early yet, but the new partnership puts Laughing Man in more than 1,800 stores across the country, a distribution wide enough that just might allow Hugh Jackman to end the cycle of poverty at least for the coffee growers he's trying to help. And that truly is a feat of superhero doing. Sometimes it's tempting for my ego to go, wow, look what I've created, but I know I haven't. Things have conspired, and sometimes it just takes saying yes, having a go for these things to sort of play out. It really is changing the world one cup of coffee at, the t at a time, right? That cup of coffee, and I've seen it, changes the life of those growers. That's a massive, massive difference. It is one cup of coffee, 
but it's changing a life. Next, home sweet American home. I think my front door is older than America. In Italy. You don't always have to settle for too little house for too much money. Just ask the Americans Alan Pizzi found in a village in Italy. 150 years before an Italian bumped into North America, a house was built in the village of Guardia San Framondi. Nestled under the imposing walls of the commanding castle, the house and its neighbors survived earthquakes and the ravages of time. More than 500 years after Christopher Columbus set off, an American woman heard on a popular TV real estate show that she could buy a house in Italy for as little as $15,000. Find out when House Hunters International shakes up Guardia San Fermandi, Italy. And I immediately started Googling the town. My friends thought I was crazy. I never doubted a second. I was so sure that I was going to be living here. So Carlo Roberts, and yes, that is a male spelling of her first name, bought a plane ticket and did a kind of Columbus in reverse. She looked at 13 houses in two days and then... Walked into this one, started walking over here, and I just froze and I burst out crying. I said, oh my God, this is my I still get emotional saying, I kept saying, oh my God, this is my house. In the past three years, some 90 foreigners, the majority of them Americans, have had similar, if not quite so emotional, experiences here. Glenn Gainsborough, a retired auto body shop owner from upstate New York, saw the same House Hunter TV show that brought Carlo here. So we lucked out. We got a little place, uh, very inexpensively, uh, something we could afford on a, on a beer budget. Fine wine lifestyle on a beer budget? A fine wine with no additive. And in a marked contrast to other places in Italy where foreign buyers have driven prices up and led to resentment by local residents, the welcome mat is very much out here. The weekly Sunday market is a chance to mingle with the locals and revel in the new experience of shopping for fresh-from-the-land fruits and vegetables, a big attraction for Florida native Courtney McCraney, who bought a house here with her mother. How do you find it? I mean, how, do, how do people treat you? Oh, they're wonderful. Everyone's so friendly. Everyone's so nice. They're all very generous and accommodating. The hospitality belies the fact that this part of Italy is economically depressed with little prospect of change. I think they've made a huge mistake, pensioner Loris Cervo says of the foreign community. There's nothing here. You can live quietly, but that's it. Linda Garofano, who left Guardia years ago to become an interpreter and now hopes to come back to live, disagrees. The influence of people coming from abroad is going to keep the culture locally alive. Because what the locals don't understand is that when you have your young people leave, you kill the local culture. In fact, the migration of young people to major urban areas put Guardia on the road to slow death. The influx of foreigners has convinced Mayor Floriano Panza he can reverse that in five years. The presence of many talented foreigners, we can say, will allow me to move faster, he says, and adds that he hopes it will rejuvenate the tourism industry. It's already helped the town win a $1.5 million grant to restore the historical center, which will ensure the preservation of little hidden gems like this ancient fresco gracing the ceiling of an archway. Half of the crumbling complex it leads to was bought by an American for $50,000.
What no one wants is to radically alter the gentle, friendly lifestyle that has been part of this hillside town since the 6th century. I think my front door is older than America. And how much? Yeah. <laughs> Add that to the fact that you can walk the streets in perfect safety at any time. And what more reason do you need for doing something that at first glance might seem completely crazy? How about the back? I was worried about that. Coming up. No, I'm comfortable there. I play dress up for a living. Putting the man in mannequin. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Now, Jim Gaffigan, who explains why family economics is anything but child's play. Money. It's a frightening topic. The absence of money can lead to divorce, bankruptcy, and tragically, in some cases, not having fancy stuff. Any parent of a young child will tell you kids are expensive. To make matters worse, little kids have very little understanding of money. I guess it's not their fault. Most six-year-olds don't have a credit card, a bank account, or even a job. Thanks, Obama. I have five young children under the age of 11. And believe me, they have no money. Or they are really cheap. Not one of my kids has ever offered to pick up the check when we go out to eat. They don't even do that, hey, you know what, Dad, maybe let's split this one. As you can imagine, it's infuriating. I blame their mother and President Obama. My children have no regular income source. I don't believe in an allowance, which to me feels like a form of extortion. Look, Dad, you give me a little something every week, and I'll make sure no one gets hurt. You're part of the family. My children's primary source of income is the tooth fairy. Really? I understand all parents lie to their kids, but a fairy that brings you money for your teeth? Who started that? And why do we keep it going? We are totally pressured into this lie because we're terrified that if we are the only honest parents that say, look, you lost a tooth, congratulations, you look like a hillbilly, we might be unconsciously depriving our children of some yet unknown but really important stage of development and won't discover until it's too late when we find a dead hamster in their backpack. By the way, could we all agree on the cash value of a tooth? I remember finding a shiny quarter under my pillow for my first tooth and being excited that I could buy a candy bar and rot the rest of my teeth. I went to school for finance. I understand economics. When my daughter lost her first tooth, I adjusted for inflation. According to my calculations, one dollar would be perfect. My daughter was thrilled in the morning when she lifted her pillow to see George Washington frowning up at her. However, when she returned from school that afternoon, she was devastated. What had happened? Through her tears, she choked out, The tooth fairy hates my tooth. Why did Nellie get $20 for her tooth? Because Nellie's parents didn't have change. That's why. Thanks, Obama. Imagine spending every working day trying on clothes. Oh, that looks great. I play dress up for a living. And when Michael Prada dresses up, designers at Banana Republic take note. He's worked here for about a decade. How about the back? I was worried about the back, too. No, I'm comfortable there. That's kind of my job, is to be able to stand there and let these people build their clothes on me. 18. If you are a medium-sized American man, odds are good that your clothes were designed on Prada or on a handful of other so-called fitting models, guys built just like him. 
I'm basically a live mannequin. What are your qualifications for this? So I basically need to be your standard size 40 chest, size 32 waist. And it helps to have perfect posture and ideal proportions. Prada is tailor-made for the job. We are sitting here surrounded by mannequins. Does this feel like family to you? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much my brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl. I think I'm better looking than these guys, actually. No, he's no dummy. Plus, Prada can actually move, which comes in handy when he's asked to take his work home with him. Dad, I remember what Bella Those kids are his, those clothes Blue. are not. <laughs> my job is to throw my kids up in the air and see if the shirt doesn't go too high, and if I bend over, am I losing my pants? He then reports back on how the clothes perform, even how they feel, which itself can be uncomfortable. I used to fit underwear. Those are always interesting fittings, and everybody can tell when something doesn't fit properly. Mm. So there's been some of those embarrassing moments. <laughs> the shoulders. For Prada, being a fitting model is steady work, and models can make up to $375 an hour. Hit that home run. But the job depends on perfection. He can't gain or lose one inch which explains his team of personal trainers. So as long as you have a 40 chest and a 32 waist, you could be doing this when you're 80. I, well, let's see. I don't know if I'd want to do it that long because <laughs> trying clothes on all day long can get tiring. Still, it's hard to imagine anyone better suited. Do you consider it an unusual job? Yes, I do. <laughs> do you know anybody else that's a fit model? I do not, <laughs> no. But now that I've met one, Maybe I should. Planning to buy something today? Melody Hobson suggests you pay with cash. Financial pundits have long predicted our transformation to a cashless society. And it's true. Paper checks are so last century, while online payments, debit cards, and prepaid cards have skyrocketed in popularity. According to the most recent Federal Reserve payment study, cash accounts for just 14% of the total value of transactions the average American makes each month. And it's not just large purchases. These days, there's no shame in using plastic to buy everything from a pack of gum to a bottle of water. The smartphone has further distanced us from our wallets. Paying with mobile apps is transforming the way we spend. Nearly 8 in 10 Americans carry less than $50 in cash. Now, while this cashless trend is great for banks and credit card companies, you should be wary. Why? Simply put, studies show we spend as much as 18% more when paying with credit or debit cards. The added expense comes down to psychology. Putting a purchase on a card doesn't quite feel like spending money. There's no cash withdrawal and no dwindling stack of bills in your pocket. Plastic is just so easy, not to mention there are all of those incentives, points, cash back, online discounts. So it's not surprising that as a country, we owe $733 billion in credit card debt, with the average household more than $15,000 in the hole. I say stop digging. Here's a challenge. For just one week, pay for everything with cash. Dinner with friends, cash. Your weekly manicure, cash. Filling up the pump, you're paying cash. If you complete my one-week cash challenge, you're more likely to stick to essentials and less likely to grab those impulse purchases. Bottom line, you should spend considerably less money. That's money you can invest towards your long-term goals. 
And when your credit card statement comes, you'll go from saying red to saying green. Advice from Melody Hobson. And next week, here on Sunday Morning. Trying to stay focused, you know, and, and really enjoying every minute. Lee Cowan talks matters of life and death with actress Kathy Bates. I'm Anthony Mason. Thanks for listening, and please join Charles Osgood again here next Sunday morning. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next.